and welcome to the second episode of the series and podcasts on sanctions brought to you by me, John Hartley, partner in the business crime and compliance team here at Shoesmiths. In the first episode podcast that we brought to you, I gave you a whistle-stop tour of the history of sanctions and how we essentially came to the series of uh, different regimes that are in implementation around the world with the United States, the EU and the UK. For today, what I'm going to take you on a further tour of is the system which we now have in place in the United Kingdom. Since the UK's departure from the European Union, through Brexit of course, the United Kingdom has adopted what is often referred to as an autonomous sanctions regime. Previously, all sanctions related issues which came out of the EU were adopted via various directives and implemented by each member state separately through different pieces of legislation. However, now we have the standalone piece of legislation which was born out of Brexit, which is the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2018, often referenced as SAMLA, S-A-M-L-A. And essentially what SAMLA did is create the power in Westminster to create sanctions regimes to give effect to foreign policy around the world. Now, of course, the other nations, the, the EU, the United States and the United Nations still have their own sanctions regimes which are in place around the world. And of course, the UK takes note of those. But essentially, after we left the European Union, we set up this autonomous piece of legislation. However, what we also did quite craftily was copy and paste pretty much all the existing regimes and implement those into UK law which took effect on the eve that we left the European Union. And if you want to look at the different regimes which are in place, you don't actually look at the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act. What you have to do is look at the specific regulations which are created by the overarching act. And in, at the moment, the UK has 34 different regimes. And so if you want to look at the regulation, for example, concerning Russia, then you'd look at the Russia sanctions regulations. The main difference between what existed previously and what is in existence now is the fact that it is autonomous. The government of the United Kingdom can take decisions as to who to sanction, who to place on a list, which themes to place sanctions on, such as the spread of nuclear arms, and of course, which individuals to place on a sanctions list. So even though this is a new piece of legislation, unlike a lot of other pieces of legislation, it has been used and of course used very widely and broadly in the last 12 months or so with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
The fact that it is autonomous allows the government the flexibility to alter, amend and tweak the legislation as we are going along. And so you're not tied in to waiting for the European Union uh, and the EU Council to, to make decisions to, to change any particular piece of legislation. So it can be amended incredibly quickly. And mistakes and errors which may have been made in previous iterations can be be amended. At the moment, I think that we are on the uh, 17th amendment to the Russian regulations since they were adopted upon leaving Brexit. But of course, most of those changes have been made in the last 12 months or so since the Russian invasion. The sanctions regime is essentially split into two distinct parts. You have targeted sanctions, which are your asset freezes, etc. And then you have trade sanctions. So the targeted sanctions are those which um, freeze the assets of specific individuals or businesses. And then you have the trade sanctions, which are a lot more diverse and are designed to have a debilitating effect on certain parts of a country's economy. And as I mentioned, we currently have 34 different regimes in operation under that overarching piece of legislation. Uh, so that's 34 different countries which the UK has implemented sanctions against. And of course, what we've seen recently in the news and what will immediately spring to mind are the sanctions against Russia. But it's not only the Russian sanctions which um, are currently in force. As I said, there are 33 others that should be taken note of. So what actually happens when the government decides to place a sanction on anybody in particular? Well, um, what we have is the Act, which is split into six different Part. There are essentially six different essential sanction types which can be placed upon individuals and um, businesses and governments. And those are, as I say, the asset freezes. And then you have travel bans as well, which flow into the immigration status of any particular individual. You have the aforementioned trade sanctions. You have sanctions against aircraft and shipping. And you have the United Nations sanctions, which are automatically included in the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act. So those sanctions are imposed and it is an obligation of all member states to implement United Nations sanctions within their regimes. And the purposes of the legislation are clearly set out if you look at Section 1 of the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act. The themes and the purposes for sanctions are for preventing terrorism, for the preservation of peace and security, to achieve foreign policy objectives. And as mentioned, you have United Nations and NATO obligations, which are included automatically and are a requirement. Moving those pieces of legislation forward and those themes forward into the aspect of placing individuals or businesses under sanctions. You have different ways in which the government can consider whether or not a person or business is closely linked to the regime 
to which it is trying to dissuade from carrying out what it is which the government is in disagreement with. Once you are designated, that person is told, and they are told the reasons why, and they then have a right to challenge. And there is a fairness to that, and a due process which is required to be followed through. And of course, not all individuals will go down that process, and it is, for intents and purposes, uh, not a particularly successful route to go down, to, to challenge the way in which that the UK government has placed your assets under restriction by placing you on that sanctions list. The government can also look at other lists and other uh, schedules of designated persons from other countries to decide whether or not they should be included on the UK's list. So for example, the UK can look at the United States list and see whether any individuals on that list should also be included in the list in the UK. But a safeguard from that is the UK cannot simply copy and paste into its legislation. There must also be a review period and the, the government must take its own measures and make its own determination. So although it can, for a limited period of time, adopt a person onto the UK sanctions list because another country has, it must then also qualify that decision shortly after. If you look at the ownership and control mechanisms of the way in which the sanctions work, there are two different bodies which maintain the sanctions regimes. You have the Office for Financial Sanctions and Implementation. This is the body which deals with applications to allow funds to be used for certain purposes, uh, allow funds to be used for exceptions which may be set out in, in the legislation, and there are general licenses which the government may um, from time to time grant and implement, such as the day-to-day -day operation of a business to make sure that staff can be paid, to make sure that rent can be paid, to make sure that a business doesn't simply fall into administration. But then the licenses are generally in existence to prevent any further flow of monies back to the beneficial owners. So dividend payments, for example, would be restricted. So the way in which that business might be making money for its owners is, is restricted. And again, that is designed to prevent the flow of monies back to the business owners, uh, which may, for uh, example, in the current case, be beneficially owned by a designated Russian person or owned by the Russian state. The other part of sanctions operations is the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office, the FCDO, which is largely in control of overseas foreign policy. And the FCDO will deal with any potential breaches of the legislation and any criminal or civil fines and sanctions which may be implemented for breaches or the circumvention of any particular sanctions piece of legislation. And currently, for the large part, breaches of the economic sanctions regime are under the strict liability policy. And so if there is a breach, it does not need to be demonstrated that the person or business which has committed that breach had any reasonable suspicion or belief of what it was doing at the time. The very fact that the breach has occurred 
is enough to warrant either the conviction or a fine being implemented. Following on from the discussion in relation to individuals and how they may be placed on a sanctions list, I just wanted to touch very briefly on the other sanctions which we mentioned just previously, such as trade sanctions. Now, trade sanctions aren't something which are easily identifiable from simply conducting a, a search on the government's website. So for the sanctions list relating to asset freezes, it is relatively straightforward to find a person who may be subject to sanctions by entering their name into a, a database on the government website. What that search engine does not reveal is the businesses which may be beneficially owned by that designated person. And the legislation states that if a business is owned by 50% or more by a designated person, then that business itself is deemed to be subject to economic sanctions and its assets frozen. And as referenced above, a business can make an application for a, a, a license to enable it to continue to operate at a very basic level. However, the trade sanctions are going to be set out within the body of the regulations themselves. And so what you would need to do is to have a look at the regulations to determine whether a particular type of business which you are anticipating engaging in is or is not restricted by those regulations. So for example, with Russia, the most obvious trade which is restricted is that of finance and providing um, investment services, making investments, buying and investing in land and property in, in Russia is by and large prohibited. Uh, again, the idea being that funds are prevented from being uh, taken into Russia and prevented from entering into the Russian economy to help the Russian war effort in Ukraine. So hopefully that's given you an idea as to how the overarching sanctions and money laundering act operates and the fact that there are lots of independent regulations which sit underneath that. And so if you do want to have a look at the restrictions against Russia, for example, you go to the Russian regulations uh, and not the act itself, the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act. So yes, hopefully that has given you an idea as to how the mechanism works and how the legislation is, is in operation at this moment in time. Thank you very much for listening. And this has been John Hartley, partner at Shoesmiths in the Business Crime and Compliance team. Thank you for listening. 